everybody. My name is Lena Epichemra, and I want to welcome you back to the Living with Power Hope podcast. Uh, we are having a great time every week talking about a whole lot of things, but always settling on hope, the hope we have with Jesus. Today is a fun, fun uh, conversation that I'm having with somebody that I went to college with. So if you can go back to so 20, 25 years ago, uh, man, Greg Bledsoe was two years behind me, and you are going to love hearing his story. And this guy, I'm telling you, and Greg, you're going to hear me say this, I already joked that it's going to take me 35 minutes to introduce him. I had to edit, like, I I could literally do a whole hour podcast telling all your credentials, but I'm going to just give an idea of the listeners who you are, and then we'll get to know the real Greg Bledsoe. He is a board-certified ER doctor, uh, and is currently, this is pretty cool, the Surgeon General for the state of Arkansas, where I am licensed, FYI. And uh, he's been doing that for a few years, I think four years. And he's the medical director. Even as he is the uh, Surgeon General, he still directs the ER at the Arkansas Heart Hospital. Uh, but beyond that, um, he I'm going to just read you a little bit of his credentials because I think it's pretty cool. And if you spend like 35 years of your life becoming this, then it's worth mentioning. He finished medical school and residency at the University of Arkansas. He went to the Hopkins Department of ER to finish his fellowship at International ER, which is relevant. He also got a master's of public health from the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Public Health. He was teacher of the year in 2005, just a very, uh, does not surprise me, very friendly kind of person and a leader in his own right. But this I found cool, Greg. You have been to 50 five-zero countries. Yeah. And ironically, you're in Arkansas now, but that just goes to show you can go over the whole world and end up in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, right. he has uh, been the personal physician to former President Bill Clinton. I'm just speaking out my favorite highlights from your bio and uh, has written a a textbook along, I think you might have, you're the chief editor basically on the 700 page textbook on expedition and wilderness medicine. And I recall when you went to Antarctica, I think you yes. had some pictures on Facebook <laughs> or somewhere. We'll hear about that in a minute. Lastly, and then we're going to get to talking to you. You are a private pilot, a scuba diver, an Eagle Scout, but my favorite, you are a student in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And the reason that I think that's cool is because my cousin Fadi does that. Can you yeah. stand on your head? <laughs> no, I, I'm uh, I'm okay at it. I've done it for a few years, but the older I get, the the harder it is to to do it uh, consistently. Uh, but let, I, me, let me let me just let me just talk to you about that. Okay, my cousin is like my age, so he's older than you are. Mm-hmm. That guy, and and we're Lebanese, so we are not known for being graceful people. And I'm telling you, what he does, <laughs> we keep working at it because he says he puts stuff on his Instagram. I can't even believe this human is related to me, let alone a human being, because he just gets all contorted and, and yeah. he's, it's a pretty, pretty riveting art. So tell us how you're doing. I'm doing great. And I, I just am so thankful um, that you reached out and that we could reconnect. I have such fond memories of, of you and uh, your other siblings that I met in college and just love them to really? death. But it's great to reconnect. We went to college. You were in Diana, right? You were in her college uh, graduating class, I believe, right. Diana. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, did you know at the time, like, were you, did you have political aspirations? I mean, is Surgeon General a political aspiration? Or tell us a bit about how, what your goals were in life and sort of how things have lined up. You've had quite a career. Well, it's, it's really been a series of walking through the doors that opened. Um, I didn't set out to become Surgeon General. Uh, my, my goal when I went to medical school was basically to end up in a jungle somewhere. I love the outdoors and I love doing global health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was able to do that full time for about five or six years when I got out of residency. Um, but, you know, the the doors continued to open in other ways. And so I just kept walking through them. And 
Uh, I was running an emergency department in Alabama and uh, the head of a, I, I'd started a medical education company to teach people how to work in uh, remote and extreme environments, physicians and nurses who wanted to go and do international work. Uh, and uh, a person that I had known for 30 years got elected governor and just really out of the blue gave me a call and said, I, I want you to consider coming back to Arkansas and being the Surgeon General. And that's how it happened. It was no, um, you know, there's some people who plan their whole lives around uh, being involved in politics and sort of strategize and how to network to do that. I didn't do that at all. I just uh, walked through the doors as the Lord opened them. And, and this is where I've ended up. And I've been very uh, gratified to serve the state in this way for the last few years. Well, and so what is a Surgeon General? So you basically put your name on cigarette packs. Like, tell us a bit more about what you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, a friend of mine asked me, uh, does it, is it considered a, a personal slight if you, uh, if you, if some, you see someone smoking or whatever? Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I don't feel that way. Uh, matter of fact, what I do is in the state of Arkansas, uh, the Surgeon General for the United States is the famous person who puts their name on the cigarette packs and all that. In the state of Arkansas, uh, it's a health policy advisory position. So uh, every state has a top health official. In the state of Arkansas, about 20 years ago, uh, that top uh, health official role was split into two positions. Uh, one was uh, the person who is the administrator of the health department who oversees 5,000 employees. And then the other became the Surgeon General position uh, that is a health policy position. So what I do is I advise the governor on, uh, on health policy. Um, I get input from the state of Arkansas, from providers and from patients. And I talk to our health, or excuse me, I talk to our elected officials about the needs of the state. And what, if I were going to summarize what I do, what I tell people is that I'm a translator. I translate the concerns and the needs mm -hmm. of the people of Arkansas regarding health to our elected officials. And then I translate the vision of our elected officials in healthcare back to the people of the state of Arkansas. So it's, it's kind of a strange role, but it's uh, given me a lot of opportunity to grow and to learn and to meet a lot of uh, fun, interesting people. And I've been very grateful for it. Well, what a percent of your time do you spend doing that right now? Well, it, it varies. So we just finished the legislative session in Arkansas. It's every other year for three or four months. They meet in the legislature. And um, uh, when the legislature is in session, uh, it's very busy. But um, when the legislature is not in session, I'm sort of on call. So I get called by the governor or other elected officials and asked to offer an opinion about this or that. Um, and I do quite a bit of public speaking. So groups will ask me to come and speak on topics. Uh, but it's, it's seasonal. So it, it becomes very busy. And it's like a, more than a full-time job, it seems like sometimes. And then it sort of dies down. And, and then I start investing my time back in my private practice. And I, I do some venture capital work. And I do the uh, the medical education company that I that we started years ago. So I ebbs and flows. You still take ex do you still take expeditions uh, to exotic places? You know, it's funny. I uh, I try to go on one every year to eighteen months. I just got back from Singapore and Indonesia. We did a conference in Singapore on expedition medicine, and then I went over to Indonesia um, to meet with uh, some health leaders over there. Uh, and have really enjoyed continuing to do the, the global health aspect, even though it's it's limited now because of my other roles. And so just going back, not to perseverate, but like you actually put a stethoscope on Bill Clinton when he was a president? <laughs> well, uh, I, I was very thankful. So I, I was uh, – the, the Department of Emergency Medicine and Johns Hopkins has a contract with the Secret Service. 
And what a lot of people don't realize is, is that current presidents have a huge health team that goes with them. They have the White House physicians mm-hmm. who actually live at, you know, in the White House and travel on Air Force One. And then when uh, presidents go to developing areas, uh, they have another team, of mo- mostly of military physicians, that goes over there and helps them. But former presidents, presidents and high-ranking diplomats and members of the first family who aren't traveling with the president, they have the Secret Service as a security backup. Uh, but they don't have any healthcare people that go with them, uh, which is why the Secret Service uh. employed the Hopkins team to start traveling with some of these folks. So I was asked to go when uh, former President Clinton went to Africa in 2002. I was his physician and traveled with him for 10 days in a private jet all around the African continent. And thankfully, uh, he didn't. Oh. Get but uh, but I spent a lot of time with him and got to know him pretty well. Um, you know, so it was it was an interesting experience. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, I'm sorry that I don't care who you vote for, and that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. I mean, it's pretty amazing. So, um, so yeah, you've been around the block. So, how much? Like, talk about your faith. How does that interplay with everything? Do you get up in the morning and read your Bible? Do you talk to people about Jesus, or do you just try to be a good citizen? Well, I, it's it's you know, I think as Christians, if we're going to live the Christian life as it's supposed to be lived, it it influences who we are, obviously. And I had a, a sort of an epiphany. Uh, years ago, uh, four or five years ago, I began to realize that, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian college. Uh, I was involved in church for years. Uh, and at some point in my medical career, I, I took a step back and um, I realized that I had spent thousands of hours learning to become a physician, but I was spending, you know, a handful of hours each year really going into God's word and learning what it said. And it was a real uh, moment of clarity and, and a moment of conviction for me. And so I, I began at that point to really try to become more disciplined in my Bible study. I, I actually began taking classes at a seminary online and doing some other things because I wow. felt like it was it was somewhat hypocritical and somewhat disingenuous to say that my faith impacted who I was and was the foundation of who I was when I was giving it just a perfunctory amount of time per week uh, and dedicating hundreds and hundreds of hours to uh, to learning more about medicine and healthcare. So yeah, so I, I get up and, and uh, you know, just like everyone, some days are better than others, but I try to spend a quiet time each morning in the Word. Uh, I try to carve out time to, to have a quiet time and to raise my eyes off my current circumstances and, uh, and focus on the Lord. And then that translates in, in hopefully how I how I interact with people. Um, I, you know, I can tell a difference in myself when my eyes and my gaze are properly aligned, and uh, how I how patient I am with people, how I perceive people. Um, but it's uh, it, you know it's one of those things where how that practically looks in the public sphere it depends on the circumstances. Uh, and I have become a big believer in the the idea of common grace where. You know, we have grace that leads us to salvation, and then we have grace that flows from the Father to everyone in humanity that that we can trace back all the good things of the world back to the Father. And he gives those blessings to us through uh, all the broken vessels that we are, whether we're Christian or non. And so appreciating my non-Christian colleagues and the others that I work with um, as you know, as they go about using their talents to do good, recognizing that good ultimately comes from the Father and celebrating that. 
Yeah. Do you um, still have time to go to a local church? Like talk, talk about that. A lot of people oh, yeah. who get very busy and we're in a very busy time of life right now, 2019. It, how do you manage to keep balance in all of the things that matter in life, your family, your, your church, your small group? Yeah, it's, it's, it can be difficult. Um, and some seasons of life are easier than others. Uh, I'm very fortunate. We uh, have spent the last few years uh, alternating between homeschooling our kids and sending the kids to a, a little local Christian school. And so I've had quite a bit of time with my family just because our family schedule is more flexible and can kind of bend around my crazy schedule. Um, but a part of that is mm. that we attend the local church. Uh, and I, I am as consistent as I can be. There are some Sundays where I have to work in the emergency department or I'm traveling. But, um, but being involved in a local church is a big part of who we are and, and who I am as an individual. I just don't think you can survive long-term without having that fellowship. Right. Um, you lived for a couple of years in Qatar. Yes, that's true. Remember that? Yes. Right. <laughs> I, I know because I picked your brains when I contemplated going. So that was must have been an interesting um uh, time so you you were connected with believers there like did you find living your yet was that any different being a christian there than it is here like is the cultural dynamic in the united states better or for, worse for living out your faith like is are you well, more aware of being a christian in a yeah, country like Qatar? that's a great question and that's something i actually thought a lot about especially coming back from from cutter um you know, there, there's good and bad. I mean, we certainly have a lot more freedom in the United States uh, still, in spite of you know all the, the political stuff that's going on. We have a lot of freedom yeah. to do what we want. And that that contributes to a lot of positive things. Um, one of the interesting things about living in a foreign country that's not an open society and that doesn't have a Christian tradition is that uh, you, you realize how... Uh, how picky you are <laughs> when it comes to Christian fellowship uh, in the United States. So in the United States, in a lot of communities, mm -hmm. you're a Christian, you have right. a whole long list of places you can go and, and interact with other Christians. And you can pick your church based on what makes you most comfortable or what interests you the most. Um, and that's a good, a good situation to be in. And so, you know, if you like your services a certain way, you like a certain type of music, you like to meet at a certain time or a certain part of the city, you can choose your church based on those factors and what people do. But when you live overseas in a place where there's only one church that, or maybe two that teach the Bible, you're limited in what your options are. And it makes you bump up against people who might not share exactly your same view of life and still be believers. Mm -hmm. I think that's a positive thing. So in our, our church in Qatar, the church was tolerated by the government, but it wasn't sanctioned by the government. And so what they did was they would allow us to meet, but they wouldn't allow the church to hire a full-time pastor. So what would happen is, is that sometimes people would visit from out of town and who we were pastors or trained theologians who would teach. But the, but the majority of time, the people who were in the pulpit were the local leaders, the elders of the church. Um, and they were all, without exception, lay people. And the other thing that was interesting was that the, the membership of that church, there were over 40 nationalities represented. And because of the fact that it was in Qatar and there was a lot of there were a lot of people there who were working on um, short term projects, you had a lot of turnover. So you would you know become good friends with someone and then a year later they'd be transferred and then another family would come in. And of our you know 10 or so closest friends, 
we had friends that were Canadian, South African, uh, from countries in Asia, from uh, all all sorts of you know European countries, and so it was. Uh, it's a very eclectic mix, and it it you have to you you have to adjust to that, and you begin to realize that there is a significant part of what we consider to be the Christian faith in America that is tradition and is our preference. So seeing that is is interesting and it, it, I think it causes you to grow. That's good. I know here it's like, I don't like my small group. I'll find another church. You know, it's like, it's so sad, but um, let let us indeed talk about the health, the state of the health of our country. Cause I do think if anyone knows a little bit about it, Greg, it's you. Uh, and specifically, I want to start by talking about weed. I told you, warned you ahead of time. I want to talk about pot a little bit. Yeah. Because you were pretty interested in that. And now, how many states have uh, legalized marijuana? Well, it depends on your definition of legalized. And I, I don't know the exact number right now, but it's, you know, there's there's different degrees of legalization. There's recreational, then there's medical. Um, and medical is all different forms. There are some states that allow just a little bit and some that allow, you know, 30 or 40 different diagnoses to qualify. And then you have uh, states that allow CBD, which is cannabidiol, which is a uh, compound found in marijuana. They allow that, but they don't allow any other type of marijuana. Uh, So, you know, there are a lot of states, the majority of states have one of those forms of legalization. Um, But it's, you know, it's obviously a trend that's growing. And, yeah, we uh, in 2016, we uh, we passed um, we legalized medical marijuana in the state of Arkansas. And I was very much against that, but here we are. Right. So I remember watching Facebook a little bit and, and picking up on that. I mean, you really had strong feelings about it. Um, why? Tell us more about that. I mean, well, besides the, uh, you know, you're yeah, obvious, but walk us through. It, it, uh, and we could do a whole hour podcast on or more on uh, medical marijuana and marijuana in general. But what worries me is that there's a disconnect between what the research shows and what what people who are in the healthcare industry are seeing and the common narratives that are in the lay press. Um, and I've told people, uh, this might seem a little contradictory, but you know, I've got a group of friends who believe that um, that you you need to treat marijuana like we treat alcohol and cigarettes, and you need to legalize it and tax it and not sell it to minors and not market it to minors, but adults who understand the risk, should be able to use it. Um, that's that's a legitimate position. I don't agree with that position, but that's a legitimate position. And that's a very different position than saying marijuana is healthy and it's good for you and it takes care, it, it cures or significantly alleviates all these problems. And there's you know 30 and 40 diagnoses. Um, and that's just not the case. Uh, marijuana has been shown to help with some types of pain, there are, are some studies that show that CBD, uh, when it's purified and, and, and um, given as a pharmaceutical, uh, can help with some very, very, very small sections of pediatric epilepsy that uh, is, are hard to control, the seizures are hard to control. Um, but that's, there's really not much uh, else that's been shown to really help. And it has shown to hurt a tremendous amount of things, and it's not discussed in the lay press. And the most Concerning thing to me is, is that they've done longitudinal studies now for 30, 40 years of kids that started using marijuana before the age of 25, used it at least once a week, and then eventually stopped. And what they 
have shown very clearly is that if you use marijuana at least once a week uh, when you're young, under the age of 25, that you never fully regain your full cognitive abilities. You have a drop in your cognitive ability and your intellect, and it never comes back. And that has been shown repeatedly. And even the the physicians that are in, you see in the lay press that people identify as being pro-marijuana say that that is the case. Uh, and it's just not highlighted by the media. And so um, it really worries me. It, it worries me that people are hearing a, a narrative that's being pushed as a marketing or political, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say ploy, but, uh, but strategy and are leaving this and, and don't understand the risk. Uh, it just, it worries me. Well, and who has the most to gain with legalizing it? Because is it like drug companies? Is it, well, that, that's is it like, yeah, to that's me, just, it seems like the, like, yeah. So, and that's, that's the other thing. And by the way, just so your listeners, if they happen to be listening to this, uh, I've never received a dollar from any pharmaceutical company and, and don't today. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, if you look at, uh, I've given speeches and some things have been posted on the internet and then the comments are always, well, he's bought out by the pharmaceutical company uh, companies, but I've never received a dollar from any pharmaceutical companies. But, uh, yeah. you know, it, it reminds me, to be frank, of where we were 25 years ago with opioids. With opioids, you have a group of people who are suffering, who are really in pain. You have another group of people who have a product, opioids, uh, that, and they stand to profit significantly from, from selling that product. Um, and then you have uh, a way of uh, getting that product, marketing that product in an effective way to increase the sales. And so with opioids, what you had 25 years ago was you had this you know, group of hurting people. You had the pharmaceutical companies who developed uh, OxyContin and some of the others. And then the mechanism that was used was a politically correct movement within our federal government in JCO and, and, and the pain is a fifth vital sign movement and some other things that really began to steamroll and push this idea that we needed to aggressively treat pain predominantly with opioids. And what happened was tragic. And what I see the corollary to that is here we are 25 years later and we finally, we finally acknowledge that that was a big mistake. And what we have with the marijuana situation is we've got a group of people who are legitimately hurting, obviously. And we have a group on the side here, these marijuana manufacturers and producers and sellers who are in the process of, of profiting significantly. And instead of having the federal government involved, what we have is, you know, the, the uh, culture at large saying that it's, it was a conspiracy to outlaw marijuana in the, in the beginning, and we need to open this up. And there's this very popular narrative in the press that it's completely safe and harmless and even maybe beneficial health health wise. And it's just not true. And what worries me is is that a lot of people are going to get hurt and there's going to be some other people who are going to make a lot of money. And in 20 years from now, 25 years from now, we're going to be right back where we are, except it's going to be with marijuana and and the, you know, it's not going to be overdoses, but it's going to be our kids aren't succeeding academically or our kids are, you know, whatever, um, are addicted to these substances and they can't get off. So I, I'm concerned about it. Right. Do you feel like the cat's out of the barn? I mean, is it too late to, to change things or well, is there still room? I mean, to fight for policy change and et cetera. Yeah, I, I think, um, well, like in the state of Arkansas, I, I think it's a done deal, uh, at least for a, a generation. Uh, in, in Arkansas, it's written into our constitution now. So the only way to get it out, out of our constitution to make it illegal, again, would be to get it on the, the popular ballot. And have the pop, you know, the population vote on it and get it removed, which I think is very unlikely. So, you know, 
nationally, I think there are states that'll probably continue to to have it uh, illegal. In Arkansas, I, I you know my my stance on it in Arkansas now is, look, it's legal. I'm not going to be uh, you know warring. I mean, it does me no good to use the bandwidth that I have to continue to uh, you know attack marijuana because it's legal. It's done. So what I what right. I so what do you do now? Right. So, so, right now. Yeah. So what I'm doing at this point is is that I just want to make sure that what's sold to the population in Arkansas is what it says it is. So there's a lot of uh, research that's shown that because these marijuana products are sold as supplements and not as pharmaceuticals, they're not as tightly controlled. Uh, and so a lot of things that are on the shelves have mm-hmm. a lot of contaminants like pesticides, fungicides, and even fungus in in the product. So we're working with regulators to make sure that the products that are on the shelves in Arkansas uh, are marked with what they say they are, they, that they have either, you know, the, the correct amount of marijuana or, you know, if they're not supposed to have THC and it's just CBD, that it's just the CBD and then it's not filled with impurities. And then also that I think it's important that the lay public know that uh, there is risk involved with these things. And so, you know, when I'm asked to speak on marijuana, which quite frankly, I'm tired of doing <laughs> so many talks about it but when I'm, asked, when I'm asked to talk about it i just say look it's legal i'm not going to waste my time uh trying to convince you that it's wrong but just be aware that you need to make sure that what's on the shelf that you're taking is uh, what it says it is and number two that you understand the risk involved with it well and i want to yeah i do want to switch gears a little bit i mean this we don't want to spend the whole time talking about marijuana but that was really helpful <laughs> And, uh, and I think it's still an important issue yeah. to think about because I agree with you. There's a lot of feeling in the lay population that it's not that big a deal, um, which, by the way, you said something about how the lay population looks at things and the medical community looks at it from a different perspective. And I think and that's another conversation that I'm going to do a podcast on soon on vaccines, because I think in some ways yeah. there's now this push growing against vaccines. But that's a we'll leave that for another day. Yeah. I do you want to talk a little bit about your perspective of the state of the health of our country and really maybe dividing it up into twofold. One, we could talk about the easy stuff, the regular, you know, what are the things that are still getting Americans in trouble health-wise? You know, where would you rate the American population on a scale of one to 10 health-wise? And then I want us to spend a little time talking about mental health and why it's becoming so much more seemingly pronounced. Uh, And I know as an ER doctor, you're probably facing that. Uh, You know, I know in my ER, we had hugely long waits of increasingly numbers of people who are coming in with depression, anxiety, needing to be hospitalized, lack of services, et cetera. So maybe we can do the easy stuff first, talk about the physical health. How are we doing? Give us a report card <laughs> of the state of health in the U.S. Well, I, <laughs> one to ten. Yeah. Oh, boy, sick. We're horrible. We're done. I, I, think, I think, you know, um, I mean, it depends on what, what lens you're using to look at the state of the health. I mean, in some ways, when you look at the obesity epidemic, for instance, we're not doing so well. We'd be like a three or a four. Uh, when you're when you're looking at things like the raised awareness that people have for um, you know attempting to live a healthy life, like, you know the, I think more mm-hmm. people are trying to exercise. More people are aware of of you know the the problems with uh, a really bad uh, diet. So yeah. I think that's that's good. And so I would you know maybe give a higher number for that. I think overall, uh, what's really interesting about the state of health in the United States is how diverse we are and how different the, the communities are and how it it really tracks back to the community that you're in. So in the state of Arkansas, we're a predominantly rural state, but we have, if we have an urban area, it's Northwest Arkansas around the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville and where we have our big industry like Walmart and J.B. Hunt. And then in central Arkansas, which is the, the capital in Little Rock, we have 
what little urban areas we have, we have, you know, 200,000 people or 50,000 people in the Little Rock area. And then we've got about that many in the Northwest Arkansas area. And then the rest of the state's very rural. And when you look at Arkansas and you look at these health indicators, it's a drastic difference between the rural and the more urban and in, in various you know, segments of the population. And so some, some sections are doing really well. I mean, you look at communities like Boulder, Colorado, which is held up as an example of an incredibly fit, healthy community um, in, our, in our country. And then you can look at other communities that you, we could easily name where in urban, in inner city areas or in rural areas, the access to care is poor. The, the violence um, is poor, you know, it's you know, contributing because people don't want to leave their homes. Um, kids don't get out and exercise. They stay indoors but because of either there's no place to exercise or because the parents are scared to let them out um, because of the crime and other issues. Uh, and then access to things just simply like healthy food. It's interesting. Uh, there's this idea of food deserts out there where even in urban areas to get to a place where you can purchase healthy food like fruits and vegetables is a real problem, even if you have the money. And if you don't have the money, that's a whole nother issue. So there's a lot going on uh, that complicates our overall health picture in the United States. But what's interesting is, is that if you look broadly, what you see is that you have pockets in America that are doing pretty well, you know, communities that are doing pretty well, and then you have communities that are doing really poorly. And how we, how we raise up the, um, the ones that aren't doing well is a is a big area of focus with uh, public health officials nationally these days. How is access of care now compared to like ten years ago? Oh man, um, I was going to say four <laughs> years ago, but I don't want to get too political. No, I, 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 I mean, I it, there's been so much talk over it for the last ten years. I I don't see a big difference. Um, I agree. I, I really, I really don't. Yeah. I mean, I I think we've had good people on both sides of the aisle that are trying. I, I don't see that the needles change that much. Um, and I, you know, there's various reasons for that, but, uh, but I don't, I don't see a big shift and it's, you know, it's, it's a continuing, a continual concern uh, when you look out at what's going on in, in some of these communities nationally. Right. Uh, what are like practical two or three health tips you would give to people? If you were like somebody listening, what can they do to be healthy? Two or three things. Well, I, I can tell you what I do. So I'm, I'm in my mid forties. Um, I'm not a, you know, there are people who are workoutaholics who are you know highly fit. My wife works out three, four, five times a week. She's in you know, way better shape than I am. Um, and I, you know, I have a busy job and I, you know, have wear a bunch of different hats and I've got small kids at home. So I identify with the, you know, the kind of the, the stretch thin population of people in their middle age. But what I try to do is um, number one, uh, whatever your drink of choice is, uh, whether that's soda or juice or uh, you know alcoholic beverages or whatever, I would say drink that less and drink water more. That's a, that's a simple number one step. Number two is um, do something to be active. Find some way of being active you know, four or five times a week, even if it's just walking or taking the stairs. So what I do is uh, I help supervise a rehab center at our hospital. And, and so I have the benefit of uh, spending some of my clinical time in a facility that has a bunch of rehab machines. I try to run on the treadmill mm. between five and 10 miles a week. So not, not a huge amount, but just enough to get my, my heart rate going yeah, yeah. and uh, get a sweat. 
And then um, the other thing I would recommend is, and this, some people don't, don't realize this, but if you can go out and twice a week lift weights, so find a place that has a fitness center that has weights or free weights or machines or something, but get your body pushing against the weights to, to con- continue to keep your bone density, to keep your strength, to keep some balance there. Um, that's a good thing. So, you know, taking a step back, what I try to do week to week is I try to run five to 10 miles a week. I try to lift weights twice a week. I try to drink more water than I drink anything else. And I, I, you alluded to it earlier in your, uh, your interview, but I try to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu at least once a week. <laughs> that keeps me, uh, keeps me flexible and also uh, yeah, yeah, keeps me yeah. very Which is like doing <laughs> This is like 20 workouts in one, but that's, I mean, still, no, that's very cool. And I mean, that's doable. Like you hear that and you're like, I think I could manage that. Yes. You know? Yeah. And so what you do is you just, you know, number one, start drinking more water and cut out the other stuff. And then, you know, if you go twice a week, uh, twice a week to the gym, run a mile or a mile and a half or, you know, walk a mile or two and then lift weights. And then you, you've accomplished the majority of that. And if you don't have a gym, you don't have to make it so complicated and be like, well, I can't afford to go to the gym. You can literally at Ross's, you can pick up some of these weights oh, for like less than 10 bucks, absolutely. which can. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what about mental health? Why do you think it's becoming such a crisis in our country? You know, that's a, that is a great question. And there's, uh, there's so many different perspectives on that. Um, I, you know, I think there's always been, there's always been sort of, for lack of a better word, a crisis in healthcare going back, or a crisis in mental health, as long as there's been human beings. It's just, how are those th- situations handled? You know, we live in a, a society that's very fragmented. Um, I mean, the benefit is, is that you can pursue all sorts of things. You can pursue your interests. You can, you can move to other parts of the world or other parts of the country very easily. Um, but the sense of community mm-hmm. and the sense of, I've got your back no matter what, is is not very common anymore, even within families. And so, you know, you have families that are fragmented, communities that are fragmented. You oftentimes people don't know their neighbors. They don't know um, really anything about, you know, anyone outside of a handful of people. And even though we're connected digitally more than we've ever been, that that personal uh, sense of connection is often lacking. And the sense of commitment, you know, it used to be that there were people had a sense of duty, you know, duty to God, country and family. And if you had a family member that was going through something, you had a you felt a duty to respond to that. Um, And that's changed. And so I think we I, I don't necessarily think we have more mental health. I just don't think we have the support in our culture, in our communities that we we've had uh, in the past. And so the first time someone, you know, it used to be someone would have symptoms and a parent or a sibling or a coach or a pastor or a teacher would catch it. And they had a support system. It might not have been a perfect support system, but there were, there were people in the community that could come alongside that person. Um, now, sometimes the first time someone has, has a, you know, when, when people realize something's not right is when the person has a major issue um, and shows up in an emergency department after an overdose or, you know, does something violent. And so I just, I don't have a simple answer to your question, but I think that the fragmentation of our society and, and how uh, how disconnected we are is contributing significantly to it. What about social media? Do you think that's as big a factor as it seems to be? I do. Um, I don't think social media is the you know the the 
the one stop shop for all things that's wrong <laughs> that are wrong in our society. Some people I think played up maybe too much, but I think it contributes. You know, I was talking to someone the other day um, regarding health issues. You know, all of us have experienced, unless we're perfect physical specimens, we've all experienced the idea of, you know, we walk into a gym and, and we, we start to exercise and we look around at the other people in the gym and we think, oh my gosh, I'm the slowest, fattest, most out of shape, most you know, pitiful person in this place. Why am I here? I'll never come back. But, you know, that, that feeling, which is, you know, us, us uh, projecting and comparing ourselves to others, that feeling uh, is magnified a hundredfold in social media. So now we're able to compare our vacations and our, you know, our relationships and our, what our kids are doing and compare it in real time every day compared to not just our peers who are around us geographically, but our, you know, friends and friends of friends who are all over the world. And it, I think it's contributing to a lot of discontent and a lot of, um, you know, the increased anxiety and depression, especially in young people who maybe are, don't realize that the glossy photos don't capture the whole tale of what's going on in that person's life. So um, I do think it, it, it's a contributing factor. Um, and I, I, you know, I, there's more I could say on that, but, but yeah, I don't think it's the, the, the end all be all as far as the only one issue, but I think it's a contributing factor. Sure. Yeah. And it's like, if people don't have a social media management plan, yeah. it's almost like you're already going to be like, you're almost like every human has to have it yeah. now. I don't think you, any, I think especially as a Christian, I don't think we can afford not to have some sort of management plan for our social yeah. media. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, if if nothing oh. else, just for for being a good steward of our time, because I mean, you could get on social media and waste hours and not realize it. Oh, I know. I'm guilty of that. Overall, I mean, you're sort of in this political scene in a certain extent, and and the health policy perspective. I mean, how do you feel hope for our country? And you know, moving forward, a lot of pessimism right now in the United States. Again, not to blame social media, but if you look at Twitter, man, sometimes it can be really hard. Do you, overall, what's your state of, of perspective in terms of the hopefulness that you feel towards the United States right now? Well, overall, not health wise. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think anyone with any sense looking at our country has the feeling that something's not right. Um, that's a pervasive feeling. And I've got friends that span the political spectrum. I mean, they, I've got friends on the left and on the right. And it's a it's a universal feeling. We're looking out at our culture. We're looking out at at what's going on in our public discourse, and uh, we have this sense that that, that there's something wrong. Um, you know, I I take comfort. I, I like reading history. I take comfort in reading the, the stories of our our founding, uh, you know, fathers and mothers who uh, who helped put this country together. And in other times and in other places uh, around the globe, um, other times in our in our world's history where there there have been seeming seeming points of chaos. Um, and what you find is that, uh, you know, uh, as, as a Christian, I look at these situations and I take great hope in, in saying that, number one, the Lord is uh, still in control. Number three, there's a story that he's involved with that maybe I can't see all the aspects of. And I take comfort in the fact that there are other people that are, uh, you know, wonderful, loving, you know, uh, contributing people who are involved in our country and in this world uh, and in our communities that maybe 
just don't have the, the platform that some of the people who are negative have. So, uh, you know, I, I keep thinking yeah, of that really- situation where, you know, Elijah's, you know, has uh, gone to confront Ahab in the Old Testament and he's um, by the brook and he says to the Lord, you know, I'm it. I'm the only one. And the Lord says, you know, that's silly. There, there are hundreds of others just like you who haven't haven't uh, left the faith and done what's wrong. And I think that's the, the thing that gives me hope is that I realize that there are there are lots of people out there who maybe don't have the social platform that some of the others have who are just getting up every day and putting their shoes on and walking out the door, doing their best to love their, their spouses, to love their community, to raise their kids well, to do a good job and to come home and to, to uh, do what's right and, and love the Lord and, and love uh, the people in their lives. Uh, and that's, I think, much more common than people realize, because those are the sort of people that aren't going to get on and rage on Twitter uh, and don't, and therefore don't get the attention that maybe some of the others do. So I think it's a two-pronged perspective. Number one, I think uh, I recognize, like others, that there are, there are this is a very uh, um, concerning time in our nation's history. But overall, when you take a step back, uh, I'm an optimist in the sense that I feel like the, the Word still has things under control, and uh, I just want to be faithful no matter what happens. Well, and I think, yeah, as we come to the end, I mean, I think uh, a couple of thoughts. I mean, one, I felt that hope when I went to the National Prayer Breakfast yeah. earlier this year in February. See, and I was astounded at the number of senators and congressmen and women who are people of faith yeah. on both sides of the aisle, which I just don't know why it took me by surprise, the depth of their faith yeah. and how, you know, like sometimes you just vilify certain people and certain, you know, ideologies, but I was really rebuked in that. And I thought, wow, there are people who believe all kinds of things, who trust the Lord and might differ with me on certain things, but yet are still completely faithful. And that's number one. Number two, I think you hit on it. And I sort of want to finish with this uh, before we kind of, you know, talk about ways to connect and whatnot. But what you were ending with, which is like, practically speaking, all right, most people who are listening to this are followers of Jesus. You know, how do you sow hope in the communities and in neighborhoods? And you sort of talking about that, like, you get up, you're faithful to your marriages, to your husband, to your to your kids. And so give us like sort of concluding thoughts, like for the individual who's listening, you know, we, we went through some health tips, you know, here's a couple of simple things you can do. Spiritually speaking, how do you, how do you sow hope in your neighborhoods for the average listener right now? Who's like, man, I want to be a person of hope in the United States. I, I think you recognize, I think it goes back to that idea of common grace in the sense that you realize that all good things flow from the hand of the father. And you, you walk out into your community and you say to your neighbors who might differ than you, who might have different beliefs than you, who might have different faith backgrounds or look different than you, you look at them and you can look them in the eye and say with complete honesty and transparency and without any hypocrisy, I thank God for what you're doing. I thank God for your life. And I thank God that you are who you are and where you are. Even if you never come around to my perspective of thinking, even if you never, you know, sign up for the the Christian faith, so to speak, I thank God for who you are because the goodness that I see in you, the talents that I see in you, uh, I know come directly from the hand of the Father, and it's His way of blessing, another way of His of His of blessing the community and blessing me personally. Again, even if you, as my neighbor, don't agree with me. And so that's given me tremendous hope and also a tremendous ability to truly love the people in my life 
uh, and in my community, even when we disagree, recognizing that the Lord is doing his work in them and the Lord is is blessing our community through them, even if maybe they don't recognize that it's coming from his hand, because we believe that all good things are coming from the Lord. And so through his common grace, he gives people talents to bless our community through him. So recognizing that gives me tremendous hope and that, that he's still at work in their lives and in our community, even if I, um, you know, even if the person might not wear the label Christian. So I, I that gives me tremendous hope. Right. I mean, that's an awesome uh, way to, to really finish this conversation, which I've enjoyed tremendously. But imagine if everyone listening went and did this to particularly people who staunchly disagree with you. And you just be like, dude, I love you. You're awesome. You yeah. know, I mean, you know, I mean, just think it would radically change everything. And I, I, I almost would challenge you if you're listening, pick out right now, like sit down and jot down two or three names of people that you just generally maybe don't see eye to eye on and just take off the agenda and just do what Greg just advised us. I think I really believe God can use that. And so I, that's my challenge to you guys. I love your thoughts, Greg. I know I threw a lot of different questions at you and um, you're just coming off. A, I, I, I think you told me a, a, ten, a handful of six-year-old boys in your home. Is that what you were doing? Right before the my, uh, my daughter, she's the only girl in her class and she had her classmates all over today for the afternoon. And it was, uh, it was a wild experience, but it was a lot of fun. Well, my nephews would have enjoyed being there. I have a five-year-old nephew. He would have he would have had fun. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I, I want to let people know how to connect with you. Um, you're on Twitter? I am. Um, my, my Twitter uh, handle is ghbledsoe, so at ghbledsoe. Uh, you can also uh, reach out to me online. I've got a website, ghbledsoe.com. And there's a, a form you can fill out and, and uh, reach out to me if you want to. But uh, I really appreciate you reaching out to me, Lena. It's been great to reconnect and so thankful for your ministry and all the people you're reaching. But thank you so much for this interview. We should do it again sometime. I uh, know. We'll talk more about pot. In the meantime, I can honestly say this has been my first podcast with the Surgeon General of the <laughs> State in the United States. So there you go. Uh, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, again, I, I, I just can't believe we graduated from the same college and just seen all the God's done in your life. Awesome. We will be praying for you and praying that God will continue to expand your sphere of influence. In the meantime, guys, if you're uh, finishing up this hour with us, uh, you have questions, you want to connect with me, lena at livingwithpower.org, or go to my website, livingwithpower.org. Tons of free resources, ways for you to get stronger in the Lord. Uh, we've got, we can point you to whatever needs you have. And we will catch you again next week, as usual. In the meantime, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is our hope and he is the way. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.